Welcome to Public Domain Playhouse's rendition of The Call of the Wild by Jack London. Today, Chapter 4, Who Has Won to Mastership? Buck stood and looked on the successful champion, the dominant primordial beast who made his kill and found it good. Those immortal words were written by Jack London back in the early 1900s for A Call of the Wild, Chapter 3, The Dominant Primordial Beast. That was last week. Thank you very much for joining us this week for Chapter 4. And thank you very much for, again, joining me. I'm Bart Benny, your narrator and host for Public Domain Playhouse, where we bring you the works of antiquity today. These are great works of fiction, works that have actually stayed with us, even though they're more than 100 years old, and part of our lexicon, even to this day. Everyone knows what the Call of the Wild is about. Everyone knows the simple things that London was writing about as far as being the dominant primordial beast. So I'd like to take just a few minutes to kind of rehash what we went through, basically, in Chapter 3. Boy, that was a great chapter, right? We uh, finally had the big showdown between Buck and Spitz, the dominant alpha male dog, who had been the lead of the team. But uh, Buck turned to his primitive instincts more and more, and uh, he struggled to, as you know, as he was struggling to survive the northern wilds, that he leaned more and more into his primordial self. London even talks about how he feels what his ancestors felt, maybe basically the same thing in a loop. One night, Buck finally settles down under the shelter of a rock. Remember that? But when he goes to get his food, he finds that his space is occupied by spits. They fight. He springs on Spitz, surprising him. And the two circle each other, preparing to fight, while Francois eggs Buck's on, Buck on. But just then, they hear Perrault shouting and see almost a hundred starving huskies charging into the camp. These wild dogs are so thin that their bones seem to be coming out of their skin, London says. And they're mad with hunger. And Buck had never seen anything like this. Buck is attacked by three huskies at once. Remember that? And his head and shoulders are slashed really bad. He gets pretty well torn up, as well as a lot of the other dogs do, too. But even as he fights the wild dog, Spitz continues to nip at him. He's taking the, uh, the underhanded way of trying to take Buck down. Eventually outnumbered, the sled dogs run out onto the frozen lake and regroup in the woods, and they're all badly hurt. Then in the morning, they make their way back to camp, but there they find no food. So after looking over the damage, Francois worries that the wild dogs were mad and that their bites may have infected the sled dogs, but Perrault doubts it. 400 miles of trail remain in the Yukon, and the team reaches the most difficult stretch, frozen lakes and rivers, where the surface is partially melted. At times they take great risks and many of the dogs actually break through the ice and almost freeze to death or even drown. Dolly, one of the dogs, goes mad one morning and begins chasing Buck. Francois ends up having to kill the mad dog with an axe and Buck is left exhausted from the running that he did trying to get away from the mad dog. 
Spitz springs on him, but Francois attacks him with his whip, and from then on, Buck and Spitz are huge rivals engaged in an undeclared war. So a fight to the death seemed inevitable, and if you listened to the very end, you found out that it was. At that point, even Francois and Perrault realized that there's going to be a huge showdown, with Francois betting on Buck and Perrault on Spitz. Before they reach Dawson, Buck threatens Spitz's leadership by siding with the weaker dogs when Spitz tries to bring him into line. But no opportunity for a fight presents itself and they arrive in town with the outcome of the struggle still pretty uncertain. London does a masterful job of carrying this on through to the end of the chapter. After a brief stopover in Dawson, the team pushes on towards Skagway with Buck's insurrection against Spitz growing every single day. Then one night, the team spots a rabbit. And 50 dogs from the Northwest Police Camp join in the hunt. Buck leads the pack, but Spitz, unbeknownst to Buck, leaves the pack and cuts across a narrow piece of land. Buck thinks that he will catch the rabbit, but then sees Spitz cut him off. Spitz's jaws clamps down on the rabbit's back, kills the rabbit, or he sends it into a great amount of pain. Buck drives into Spitz, and the two roll over and over in the snow. At that point, Buck realizes this is it. They're locked in a battle to the death. Spitz is a practiced fighter and fends off Buck's attacks patiently. And then after a few minutes, Buck is dripping with blood, and Spitz is virtually untouched. Seemed pretty bad for Buck. Spitz begins to rush him, but Buck tricks his rival, faking a rush against the other dog's shoulder, and then diving for the leg instead, and breaking it. Crippled, Spitz soon goes down, and the other dogs gather to watch as Buck finishes him off. And actually, it was my impression that the other dogs kind of finished him off, and that Buck was the one who stood there, the dominant primordial beast. So in chapter three, there's an emphasis that the external dangers of the wild can bring out the primitive inside anybody. Life within the world of gold town, gold rush towns and sled teams can be dangerous enough as Curly's death and Buck's rivalry with Spitz demonstrate. But worse, threats lurk beyond the confines of camps and mail routes. There's wild dogs for one thing and madness for another. Hunger also threatens. It's a terrible enemy that has transformed the wild dogs into weird, skeletal, half-mad creatures. And at this point, hunger is not a direct threat to Buck, since Francois and Perrault are responsible masters. But later in the novel, when Buck is in the care of less experienced humans, it rears its head again. And the image of the starving wild dogs foreshadows Buck's later experience with hunger. But we're getting a little bit of ahead of ourselves. Back in chapter three, the competition between Buck and Spitz, in which each strives to be the dominant primordial beast, builds to a climatic resolution right at the very end of the chapter. In the Buck-Spitz war, we see again that the way London's dogs resemble humans. He personifies them but through Buck's revolt against Spitz, which is a first and all matter of strength versus strength. But it's also political. Buck does not merely attack Spitz head-on. Instead, he slyly undercuts Spitz's authority among the other dogs by siding with the weaker animals in disputes. 
Thus, he paves the way for his own leadership, even before the final confrontation arrives. So, while Darwinism clearly influenced London's writing, the Buck-Spitz conflict seems to be more suggestive of the ideas of Friedrich Nietzsche, a German philosopher of the late 19th century. Nietzsche argued that all of society was divided up by those who were naturally masters and those who were naturally slaves. Nietzsche further argued that life was a constant struggle either to rule or be ruled, the will to power as he termed it, replaced a conventional system of morality or ethics. He frequently resorted to animal metaphors, Nietzsche did, referring to the conquering rulers as birds of prey and blonde beasts, and their victims as sheep and herd animals. In The Call of the Wild, London transposes Nietzsche's arguments about human competition to the dogs in the Klondike, casting Buck as the dominant beast whose will to power is unmatched. His language is almost self-consciously Nietzschean. He refers to Buck as a masterful dog, filled with pride, and looking forward to a clash of leadership, because such a desire is his nature. So that wraps up chapter three again. So here we are getting ready to see what happens when Buck is the dominant alpha male. And in chapter four, titled Who Has Won Mastership? We're going to find this out. Thank you again for joining me for chapter four, Who Has Won to Mastership? Let's begin, shall we? Eh? What I say? I speak true when I say that book, Two Devils. This was Francois's speech next morning when he discovered Spitz missing and Buck covered with wounds. He drew him to the fire and by its light pointed them out. That speaks. Fight like hell, said Perrault, as he surveyed the gaping rips and cuts. And a buck fight like two hares, was Francois's answer. And now we make good time. No more speeds, no more trouble, sure. While Perrault packed the camp outfit and loaded the sled, the dog driver proceeded to harness the dogs. Buck trotted up to the place where Spitz would have occupied his leader, but Francois, not noticing him, brought Saul Lex to the coveted position. In his judgment, Saul Lex was the best lead dog left. Buck sprang upon Saul Lex in fury, driving him back and standing in his place. Eh? Eh? Francois cried, slapping his thighs gleefully. Look at that buck! Him kill that spitz! Him think to take the job! Go away, Hook! he cried, but Buck refused to budge. He took Buck by the scruff of the neck, and though the dog growled threateningly, dragged him to one side and replaced Saul Lex. The old dog did not like it and showed plainly that he was afraid of Buck. 
Francois was obdurate. But when he turned his back, Buck again displaced Saul Lex, who was not at all unwilling to go. Francois was angry. Not by God, I fix you, he cried, coming back with a heavy club in his hand. Buck remembered the man in the red sweater and retreated slowly. Nor did he attempt to charge in when Saul Lex was once more brought forward. But he circled just beyond the range of the club, snarling with bitterness and rage. And while he circled, he watched the club so as to dodge it, if thrown by Francois. For he was become wise in the way of clubs. The driver went about his work, and he called to Buck when he was ready to put him in his place in front of Dave. Buck retreated two or three steps. Francois followed him up whereupon he again retreated. After some time of this, Francois threw down the club, thinking that Buck feared a thrashing. But Buck was in open revolt. He wanted not to escape a clubbing, but to have the leadership. It was his by right. He had earned it, and he would not be content with less. Peral took a hand. Between them, they ran him about for the better part of an hour. They threw clubs at him. He dodged. They cursed him and his fathers and mothers before him and all his seed to come after him down to the remotest generation and every hair on his body and drop of blood in his veins. And he answered curse with snarl and kept out of their reach. He did not try to run away, but retreated around and around the camp advertising plainly that when his desire was met, he would come in and be good. Francois sat down and scratched his head. Perrault looked at his watch and swore. Time was flying, and they should have been on the trail an hour gone. Francois scratched his head again. He shook it and grinned sheepishly at the courier who shrugged his shoulders in a sign that they were beaten. Then Francois went up to where Saul Lex stood and called to Buck. Buck laughed, as dogs laugh, yet kept his distance. Francois unfastened Saul Lex's traces and put him back in his old place. The team stood harnessed to the sled in an unbroken line, ready for the trail. There was no place for Buck, save at the front. Once more, Francois called, and once more, Buck laughed and kept away. Throw down the club, Peral commanded. Francois complied, whereupon Buck trotted in, laughing triumphantly, and swung around into position at the head of the team. His traces were fastened, and sled broken out, and with both men running, they dashed out onto the river trail. Highly as the dog driver had four-valued buck with his two devils, he found, while the day was yet young, that he had undervalued. At a bound, Buck took up the duties of leadership, and where judgment was required, and quick thinking and quick acting, he showed himself the superior even of Spitz, 
of whom Francois had never seen an equal. But it was in the giving the law and making his mates live up to it that Buck excelled. Dave and Saul Lex did not mind the change in leadership. It was none of their business. Their business was to toil, and toil mightily in the traces. So long as that was not interfered with, they did not care what happened. Bill Lee, the good-natured, could lead for all they cared, so long as he kept order. The rest of the team, however, had grown unruly during the last days of Spitz, and their surprise was great now that Buck proceeded to lick them into shape. Pike, who pulled at Buck's heels, and who never put an ounce more of his weight against the breastband than he had been compelled to do, was swiftly and repeatedly shaken for loafing, and ere the first day was done, he was pulling more than ever before in his life. The first night in camp, Joe, the sour one, was punished soundly, a thing that Spitz had never succeeded in doing. Buck simply smothered him by virtue of superior weight and cut him up till he ceased snapping and began to whine for mercy. The general tone of the team picked up immediately. It recovered its old-time solidarity, and once more the dogs leapt as one dog in the traces. At the rink rapids, two native huskies, Teak and Kuna, were added and the celerity with which Buck broke them in took away Francoise's breath. Never such a dog as that Buck, he cried. No, never. Him with one thousand dollar by car, eh? What'd you say, Perrault? And Perrault nodded. He was ahead of the record then, and gaining day by day. The trail was in excellent condition, well-packed and hard, and there was no new-fallen snow with which to contend. It was not too cold. The temperature dropped to 50 below zero and remained there the whole trip. The men rode and ran by turn, and the dogs were kept on the jump, with but infrequent stop pages. The 30-mile river was comparatively coated with ice, and they covered in one day going out what had taken them ten days coming in. In one run, they made a 60-mile dash from the foot of Lake Labarge to the White Horse Rapids. Across Marsh, Tagish, and Bennett, 70 miles of lakes, they flew so fast that the man whose turn it was to run towed behind the sled at the end of a rope. And on the last night of the second week, they topped White Pass and dropped down the sea slope with the lights of Skagway and of the shipping at their feet. It was a record run. Each day for 14 days, they had averaged 40 miles. For three days, Perrault and Francois threw chests up and down the main street of Skagway and were deluged with invitations to drink. While the team was the constant center of a worshipful crowd of dogbusters and mushers, then three or four Western bad men aspired to clean out the town, were riddled like pepper boxes for their pains, and public interest turned to other idols. Next came official orders. Francois called Buck to him, threw his arms around him, wept over him. 
And that was the last of Francois and Perrault. Like other men, they passed out of Buck's life for good. A Scotch half-breed took charge of him and his mates, and in company with a dozen other dog teams, he started back over the weary trail to Dawson. It was no light running now, nor record time, but heavy toil each day, with a heavy load behind. For this was the mail train, carrying word from the world to the men who sought gold under the shadow of the pole. Buck did not like it. But he bore up well to the work, taking pride in it after the manner of Dave and Saul Lex, and seeing that his mates, whether they prided in it or not, did their fair share. It was a monotonous life, operating with machine-like regularity. One day was very like another. At a certain time each morning, the cooks turned out, fires were built, and breakfast was eaten. Then, while some broke camp, others harnessed the dogs, and they were underway an hour or so before the darkness fell, which gave warning of dawn. At night, camp was made. Some pitched the tents, others cut firewood and pine boughs for the beds, and still others carried water or ice for the cooks. Also, the dogs were fed. To them, this was the one feature of the day, though it was good to loaf around after the fish was eaten for an hour or so with the other dogs, of which there were five score and odd. There were fierce fighters among them, but three battles with the fiercest brought Buck to mastery, so that when he bristled and showed his teeth, they got out of his way. Best of all, perhaps, he loved to lie near the fire, Hind legs crouched under him, forelegs stretched out in front, head raised, and eyes blinking drearily at the flames. Sometimes he thought of Judge Miller's big house in the sun-kissed Santa Clara Valley, and of the cement swimming tank, and Yazabel, the Mexican hairless, and Toots, the Japanese pug. But oftener he remembered the man in the red sweater, the death of Curly, the great fight with Spitz, and the good things he had eaten or would like to eat. He was not homesick. The sunland was very dim and distant, and such memories had no power over him. Far more potent were the memories of his heredity that gave things he had never seen before a seeming familiarity. The instincts, which were but the memories of his ancestors become habits, which had lapsed in latter days, and still later in him, quickened and became alive again. Sometimes as he crouched there, blinking dreamily at the flames, it seemed that the flames were of another fire, and that as he crouched by this other fire, he saw another and different man from the half-breed cook before him. This other man was a shorter of leg and longer of arm, with muscles that were stringy and knotty, rather than rounded and swelling. The hair of this man was long and matted, and his head slanted back under it from the eyes. He uttered strange sounds, and seemed very much afraid of the darkness, into which he peered continually, clutching in his hand, which hung midway between knee and foot, 
a stick with a heavy stone made fast to the end. He was all but naked, a ragged and fire-scorched skin hanging partway down his back, but on his body there was much hair. In some places, across the chest and shoulders and down the outside of the arms and thighs, it was matted into almost a thick fur. He did not stand erect, but with trunk inclined forward from the hips, on legs that bent at the knees. About his body there was a peculiar springiness or resiliency, almost cat-like, and a quick alertness as one who lived in a perpetual fear of things seen and unseen. At other times this hairy man squatted by the fire with head between his legs and slept. On such occasions his elbows were on his knees, his hands clasped above his head as though to shed rain by the hairy arms. And beyond that fire, in the circling darkness, Buck could see many gleaming coals, two by two, always two by two, which he knew to be the eyes of the great beasts of prey, and he could hear the crashing of their bodies through the undergrowth and the noises they made in the night. And dreaming there by the Yukon bank, with lazy eyes blinking at the fire, these sights and sounds of another world would make the hair to rise along his back and stand on end across his shoulders and up his neck, till he whimpered low and suppressedly or growled softly, and the half-breed cook shouted at him, Hey, you buck, wake up! Whereupon the other world would vanish, and the real world come into his eyes, and he would get up and yawn and stretch as though he had been asleep. It was a hard trip, with the mail behind them and the heavy work wore them down. They were short of weight and in poor condition when they made Dawson, and should have been ten days' or weeks' rest at least. But in two days' time, they dropped down the Yukon bank from the barracks, loaded with letters for the outside. The dogs were tied up, the drivers grumbling, and to make matters worse, it snowed every day. This meant a soft trail greater friction on the runners, and heavier pulling for the dogs. Yet the drivers were fair through it all, and did their best for the animals. Each night the dogs were attended to first. They ate before the drivers ate, and no man sought his sleeping robe till he had seen to the feet of the dogs he drove. Still their strength went down. Since the beginning of the winter they had traveled 1,800 miles, dragging sleds the whole weary distance, and 1,800 miles will tell upon life of the toughest. Buck stood it, keeping his mates up to their work and maintaining discipline, though he too was very tired. Billy cried and whimpered regularly in his sleep each night. Joe was sourer than ever, and Saul Lex was unapproachable, blindside or other side. But it was Dave who suffered most of all. Something had gone wrong with him. He became more morose and irritable, and when camp was pitched, at once made his rest where his driver fed him. Once out of the harness and down, he did not get on his feet again till harness-up time in the morning. 
sometimes in the traces when jerked by a sudden stoppage of the sled or by straining to start it, he would cry out with pain. The driver examined him, but could find nothing. All the drivers became interested in the case. They talked it over at mealtime and over their pipes before going to bed, and one night they held a consultation. He was brought from his nest to the fire and was pressed and prodded till he cried out many times. Something was wrong inside, but they could locate no broken bones, could not make it out. By the time Cassier Bar was reached, he was so weak that he was falling repeatedly in the traces. The Scotch half-breed called a halt and took him out of the team, making the next dog, Saul Lex, fast to the sled. His intention was to rest Dave, letting him run free behind the sled. Sick as he was, Dave resented being taken out, grunting and growling while the traces were unfastened, and whimpering brokenheartedly when he saw Saul Lex in the position he had held and served so long. For the pride of trace and trail was his, and sick unto death, he could not bear that another dog should do his work. When the sled started, he floundered in the snow alongside the beaten trail, attacking Saul Lex with his teeth, rushing against him and trying to thrust him off into the soft snow on the other side, striving to leap inside his traces and get between him and the sled, and all the while whining and yelping and crying with grief and pain. The half-breed tried to drive him away with the whip, but he paid no heed to the stinging lash, and the man had not the heart to strike harder. Dave refused to run quietly on the trail behind the sled, where the going was easy, but continued to flounder alongside in the soft snow, where the going was most difficult, till exhausted. Then he fell, and lay where he fell, howling lugubriously as the long train of sleds churned by. With the last remnant of his strength, he managed to stagger along behind till the train made another stop, when he floundered past the sleds to his own, where he stood alongside Saul Lex. His driver lingered a moment to get a light for his pipe from the man behind. Then he returned and started his dogs. They swung out on the trail with remarkable lack of exertion, turned their heads uneasily, and stopped in surprise. The driver was surprised, too. The sled had not moved. He called his comrades to witness the sight. Dave had bitten both of Saul Lex's traces and was standing directly in front of the sled in his proper place. He pleaded with his eyes to remain there. The driver was perplexed. His comrades talked of how a dog could break its heart through being denied the work that killed it and recalled instances they had known where dogs, too old for the trail or injured, had died because they were cut out of the traces. Also, they held it a mercy, since Dave was to die anyway, that he should die in the traces, hard-easy and content. So he was harnessed in again, and proudly he pulled as of old, though more than once he cried out involuntarily from the bite of his inward hurt. 
Several times he fell down and was dragged in the traces, and once the sled ran upon him so that he limped thereafter on one of his hind legs. But he held out till camp was reached, when his driver made a place for him by the fire. Morning found him too weak to travel. At harness-up time, he tried to crawl to his driver. By convulsive efforts, he got on his feet, staggered, and fell. Then he wormed his way forward slowly toward where the harnesses were being put on his mates. He would advance his forelegs and drag up his body with a sort of hitching movement, when he would advance his own forelegs and hitch ahead again for a few more inches. His strength left him, and the last of his mates saw of him, he lay gasping in the snow and yearning toward them, but they could not hear him mournfully howling till they passed out of sight behind a belt of river timber. Here the train was halted, the Scotch half-breed slowly retracing his steps to the camp they had left. The men ceased talking. A revolver shot rang out. The man came back hurriedly. The whip snapped. The bells tinkled merrily. The sleds churned along the trail. But Buck knew, and every dog knew, what had taken place behind the belt of river trees. And that's it for chapter four, Who Has Won to Mastership? From Call of the Wild by Jack London. Join us next time for chapter five, The Toil of Trace and Trail. I'm your narrator and guide, Bart Benny, from Public Domain Playhouse, bringing you the works of antiquity today. We'll see you in the next chapter.